Hey, Heavy Metal 101 listeners, this is John just jumping in at the beginning of the episode to warn you that this is one of those shows that Eric was really excited about, and as such, it's very long and I curse quite a lot. So warned, proceed with caution. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Merry Christmas, my beloved friend. Oh boy. <laughs> I haven't had enough of this coffee to be prepared for this. Actually, this is an unusually emotional Kissmas for many of us. You see, on December 2nd, 2023, Kiss played their final, final show ever at Madison Square Garden. No! 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 As of us sitting here and recording, this fateful day has only just passed. I can only assume that you watched the pay-per-view broadcast? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Actually, to be honest, I didn't either. Look, I love me some Kiss, truly, madly, deeply. But I already saw the End of the Road Tour live, and so the pay-per-view experience seemed a tad bit unnecessary. Uh, did you hear that the big surprise at the end of that final show was Kiss unveiling themselves as having been transformed into immortal digital avatars that will now be able to play something kind of, sort of, but not really resembling live shows until Kingdom Come? So I did hear something vaguely about Kiss making digital versions of themselves, but I didn't really pay any attention mm. to it. I could see that being something that would be just background noise yeah. to you. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, how do you generally feel about this idea, which is not new to KISS, of rock bands becoming digital avatars and sort of performing these quasi-live concert experiences? I think anybody that gives their own hard-earned money to go and see projections of people mm -hmm. performing music in person should take a long, hard look at themselves. <laughs> I don't think that's unfair. I, I, I'll admit I'm dubious. And, and from what I saw, and I did watch the sort of finale of the concert as it was recorded by people who were there, the whole thing seems pretty stupid. Yeah. It, it, yeah, yeah. Love this energy we're starting out with. Yeah, Let's yeah, keep yeah. Let's this yeah. tone. You just want, we're gonna be, it's going to be morose. It's yeah. going to be uh, negative. Generally negative, yeah. yeah, yeah this yeah, is yeah. feeling very comfortable for me. No, I, think, I think things are going to take a turn, John. Oh, I think you need to be prepared psychically for a wellspring of enthusiasm that I have not yet tapped into, but will. Shortly. But I mean, the reason that we're morose is because now that I think about it, in many ways, one could probably argue that this is pretty much the very worst Kissmas ever. But maybe, maybe, my friend, we should accentuate the positive and eliminate the negative. You want me to go? <laughs> everybody say goodbye to John. Bye, everybody. It's been a great two minutes. <laughs> You did nice work, though. It was good. Thank you. It was good. You brought, you brought all the John we needed for the uh, <laughs> That was enough. The show. <laughs> so instead of feeling sorry for ourselves, I think we should do our part here at HM101 to celebrate 50 glorious years of history. And to ring in the new year with a fun-filled deep dive into the sometimes extraordinary, and admittedly often controversial, 1980s kiscography. John, do you think that all of this will make you feel just a bit better in these trying times in which we find ourselves? I'm pretty sure if I hear one more kiss-based pun, I'm going to smack my head on the table. Well, John, it sure as hell will make me feel better. And really, isn't that the most important thing? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Great! Now, 
I'm designating this episode as part of our Special Topics in Metallology series. (laughs) Now this means a couple of things. It means the script is like four times longer than usual, and the episode's going to be eight times longer. At least. Uh, At least. Strap in, assholes. (laughs) Now firstly, it means that I am willing to acknowledge that the 1980s kiscography is maybe not exactly a 101 level heavy metal topic. Because it's not heavy metal? You're such a fuckwad. Ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. John is a fuckwad. You know, we didn't fight during the death episode. This could be the one. I was too, like, orally concussed yes. to fight this, during that episode. Now you're feeling, now you're feeling loose and Well, because this music has no impact. <laughs> wow. Despite what John has to say, this is monumentally important repertoire, but it is perhaps a tiny bit towards the periphery of many of the central storylines of 1980s heavy metal. I admit this. Secondly, as John has already pointed out, most importantly, means we can stretch out a bit. We're going to really enjoy ourselves on this one. John, I'm planning for 36 straight hours of rigorous, detailed recording. I hope you're wearing your catheter. Oh, that's disgusting. (laughs) So you're not wearing your catheter. No. All right, so there'll be potty breaks. Look, we're used to me getting up and leaving in the middle of episodes. (laughs) It'll be fine. A little behind the scenes there. (laughs) Not the sausage just made and such. Well, regardless, we're in it for the long haul. So longtime HM101 listeners may recall that KISS was the single most favorite band of my misspent youth. And that while I do know that there are many out there, and some in here, who might question their credibility as an authentic heavy metal band, I am personally strongly inclined to put them into that category. John, do you recall all these things? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have discussed this band already. Mm-hmm. Yet here we are again. Oh, but, but more so. With catheters. Singular. Singular catheter. We're sharing a catheter? No, you have a catheter. I remain uncathetered. You're committed to potty breaks. Yeah. Okay. So I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it for our um, beloved listenership. Perfect. What are your own thoughts and inclinations when it comes to what you know of KISS and their heavy metal-ness? So... As is my want, I have fully forgotten every bit of music we discussed from the 70s kiss. Right, right. Now as we move into the 80s, the music you provided me to listen to, Mm -hmm. which I did. He did? He did? Does not sound like metal to me. (gasps) It's not that it's bad. Oh. It's just like mom rock. It's like inoffensive, pretty dull, and like just sort of poppy. You heard it here first, folks. John hates mothers. John hates mothers I everywhere. I said, Ooh, you suck. Inoffensive, pretty dull, and poppy. That's not hate. That's just, just... ridiculous condescension. <laughs> <laughs> well, in my opinion, John's response is, is because he is what we in the industry refer to technically as a stupid fuckwad. Is it because I grew up mm, 20 years after you, and so my <laughs> standards have been defined by a completely different era of aural sound? I guess that's an alternative explanation. We could broaden the spectrum just a teeny bit. But but we can both agree that you hate mothers. 
<laughs> yes, that's the takeaway from <laughs> okay. this episode. Okay. All right, good, good. Well, regardless of your generalized stupidity, I'll be utterly fascinated to get into some of the nitty and the gritty with you. I'm sure you'll change your tune. You'll realize that both Kiss and Mothers are fantastic, fantastic things. I am willing to consider coming around on one of those things. Great, great. We'll Stay see. tuned to figure <laughs> out which. <laughs> The story of 80s Kiss is definitely quite different from the somewhat more well-known story of the classic 70s era of Kiss, which was a time when they more or less ruled the world as near superhuman cultural figures. We did already talk a bit about that era of Kiss back in season number one. You recall that happening, if yep. none of the specific yep. details. I don't want to spend too much time on ancient history today, but I do think that a brief recap is called for. And believe you me, ladies and gentlemen... Nobody does a brief recap <laughs> like my pal, John. <laughs> Brother John, might could you preach for us the gospel of Kiss? Kiss, 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 Kiss. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, the band that would become the great and powerful Kiss emerged out of the ashes of a group called Wicked Lester which had featured two strapping young Jewish fellows, a singer-guitarist born Stanley Burt Eisen, but better known as Paul Stanley, and a singer-bassist born Heim Witz, better known as Gene Simmons. With Wicked Lester defunct, Stanley and Simmons were in the process of putting together a new musical project when, towards the end of 1972, Simmons noticed an ad posted in Rolling Stone magazine for, quote, a drummer who was willing to do anything to make it. Enter George Peter John Criscola, better known as Peter Chris. Next up, in January of 1973, guitarist Paul Daniel, ace Freely, successfully auditioned to complete the lineup, joining Stanley, Simmons, and Chris, who now officially became Kiss. Yes! The innate theatricality of Kiss was on display even in these very early days as the band began to experiment with the kabuki-style makeup, fire-breathing, and elaborate stage craft during their formative period playing the club circuit in and around New York City. By August of 1973, KISS became the first band signed to Neil Bogart's new Casablanca record label. Their self-titled debut was released on February 17, 1974, despite the fact that sales of the band's first three albums, KISS, Hotter Than Hell, and Dressed to Kill were fairly lackluster, television appearances and non-stop touring helped to grow their reputation and status until Alive, their live on September 10th, 1975, helped the band to, at last, truly become the hottest band in the world! Lovely work, Daddy-O! Of course, despite the fact that Alive eventually went on to sell over 9 million copies, and that modern critics generally hold it in high esteem, Upon its release, our always reliably unreliable buddies at Rolling Stone magazine wrote that Alive was, quote, awful, criminally repetitive, thuddingly monotonous, 
and mildly entertaining for about 10 minutes. I feel like I would have made a great Rolling Stone critic. You totally, you personify <laughs> the essence of the 70s Rolling Stone music critic. Absolutely. I missed my call. You did, you did. You were also born, uh, you know, a good 20 years too yeah. late. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, in 2003, that very same Rolling Stone magazine listed it at number 159 on its list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. So, I suppose the moral of that story is fuck Rolling Stone and the stupid, stupid horse they rode in on. Right? I mean, yes, we agree, but also, just going to take a second here to say 500 albums is too many albums for a greatest list. You need to be more picky than that. 412? 100 is already too long a list. So you do not approve of the existence of said 500 greatest albums of all time? Correct. Okay, good. I will note that in the big book of John. Thank you. Mm Mm-hmm. But we are not here to talk about Rolling Stone. No. In fact, we are not even here to talk about 70s Kiss. Thank God. <laughs> so, allow me to wrap this story up real quick. You okay with that? Please. Mm-hmm. Kiss followed up alive with three Stone classics. First, the Bob Ezrin-produced magnum opus, Destroyer, in March of 1976, which included their biggest hit in America, the ballad Beth. John, do you know the song Beth? I feel like you did make me listen to that. It's a beautiful song. It was not on your playlist. But really? No. It's a 70s song. Uh, but like in the 70s, didn't you make me listen to it? Oh, uh, like you weren't alive episode. in the 70s, John. <laughs> I honestly don't remember. I don't think so. Oh, I thought you did. It's not on Alive, and I had just had you listen to the album Alive. Your memory is false. My memory is false. That is factual. If there's one thing listeners of this show know, it's that I do not have a good memory. And that you hate mothers. For now. We'll okay. see. All I'm right. still giving you a Pending. chance to turn me around Pending. on that. All right. Well, we're going to do our very best to convince you of the value of the mothers of society. Uh, it's a great song. Beth is a great song. It is a lovely piano ballad. Credited to the great Peter Chris. <coughs> Although Bob Ezrin pretty much wrote it. But still, he sings it. Lovely. We were wrapping up quickly. Oh, sorry. 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 Uh, I get excited. I get distracted. Destroyer also includes uber-kiss classics like the opening track, Detroit Rock City, and the Marvel Studios-approved banger, God of Thunder. This was followed by their Back to the Basics album, Rock and Roll Over, which was released in November of 1976, and then along came the album with the greatest title of all the titles, Love Gun. In June of 1977. Now, John, you like that title a little bit, right? I mean, I guess. It made you giggle back in the day. Yeah, sure. Love Gun. It's a great song. Great song. Amazing song. All three albums went either platinum or double platinum, and Kiss were on top of the world. Famously, also in the year 1977, a Gallup poll found that Kiss were the most popular band in America. Woot! These were the golden years, baby. Yeah. So, John, are you feeling the feelings? I'm, I'm genuinely hung up on the fact that you just said woot. <laughs> well, John, I want you to imagine a beautiful, perfect world where you could go and see Star Wars in the theater and listen to the newly released Love Gun in the car en route via your fancy-schmancy in-vehicle 8-track player. All right. See, when I die and go to dork heaven, it's basically going to be exactly like that, wow. but with babes. Hot red-haired babes in kiss makeup. Uh, does this correspond? In the kiss makeup? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, mm. Yeah, I assume this is like... Uh, I was like kind of with you oh. for a minute, and then, then, then you lost me with the makeup. Okay, so A-track player, Fine. love gun, uh, on our way to see Star Wars. Okay. Babes. Yeah. Red-haired babes. Sure. All right. 
No kiss makeup. Not so much. Eh, all right, all right. I'm flexible. I can work with this. Anyhow, let's fast forward real quick through to the end of the 70s, shall we? Are we not there yet? Oh, not quite. 1977. Not quite. Not okay. quite. Here's what we're going to do. John, you are going to read me the significant collection of bullet points that will get us to the promised land that is the 1980s. We're going to get there. We're almost there. Almost there. I'm going to interject briefly, very briefly, with my wise, insightful analysis. You ready for this? Uh, on October 14th, 1977, KISS released Alive 2, a collection of live performances of songs from the three albums that had been released after Alive. They also included five new songs on side four of the double LP. Now, I have a foreboding note to interject here. Though Ace Frehley was credited for the entirety of Alive 2, turns out he actually only played on one of those five new tracks. He was otherwise secretly replaced by session musician Bob Kulik. This is foreshadowing. Moving on. In May of 1978, KISS began shooting their first movie, the famously awful KISS Meets the Phantom of the Park. Wow. <laughs> and it is indeed <laughs> wow. fucking awful. I own it. I own a VHS copy, no less. Please, please continue. Following the filming of Phantom, all four members of KISS went separately into the studio to record solo albums to be released on the same day, September 18th, 1978. Paul Stanley, great. Ace Frehley, great. Gene Simmons, strange. Peter Chris, bad. By the time of the recording sessions for Dynasty, the final KISS album of the decade, band relationships were quite frayed. Peter Chris, debilitated by years of heavy drug use and an injury, participated on only one song on the album, singing and drumming on his track, Dirty Living. He was otherwise secretly replaced by Sessions player Anton Figg. On the subsequent tour, Chris was to become a genuine musical liability. Though the public wasn't yet aware of it, following the Dynasty tour, which concluded on December 16, 1979, Peter Chris was no longer a member of KISS. And here we are, shivering our little bootsies off on a winter's night in Toledo, Ohio, as KISS conclude their famously poorly attended tour for Dynasty, which, incidentally, is a fucking amazing and shamefully underappreciated album. Peter Chris, we should note, is in the process of exiting stage left. You cold, John? I'm just blown away how a tour that included such hits as Toledo could have been poorly attended. Right? Fucking Toledo, dude. Great city. Great state, Ohio. These were chilly times in Kiss Camp. Let me tell you, they did a shitty movie, released some not terribly well-received solo albums, aside from Ace Frehley's, which is actually pretty universally beloved. They pissed off many of their most dedicated fans by sprinkling elements of disco across the Dynasty album, which did net them a huge commercial hit, the disco-inflected I Was Made For Loving You. But alas, the people who bopped along to that song at Studio 54 simply weren't the same sort of people who went to KISS concerts or purchased KISS records. Of course, in the midst of all of this, Peter Chris was kicked out of the band for being a drug-addled fuck-up. Chilly times indeed. Sad and chilly. So, John, are you ready, at long last, to talk about the glorious, complicated, often amazeballs 1980s KISSography? Woo! <sighs> Now, this is quite literally the most exciting day of my life. I think I'm plotting. Are you plotting? I'm not plotting. No. All right. Well, let's do this thing. The year was 1980. There was a miracle on the ice in Lake Placid. Some stupid asshole shot and killed John Lennon. 
Kim Kardashian was born. John Bonham choked to death on his own vomit. It truly was the best of times and the worst of times, no? Is the miracle on the ice different from the miracle on ice? Oh my god. You want me to read Do you it again? In miracles? <laughs> I don't anymore. Yeah, you shouldn't. I you believe, like kiss. I believe in mothers and kiss and apple pie. Ooh. That's right. America. It was into this strange, confused morass that, on May 29, 1980, KISS birthed one of the more confused oddities from their vast and storied catalog. An oft-derided power-pop masterpiece beloved only by Eric and a bunch of wonderful weirdos in Australia and New Zealand. Good I might. I speak, of course, of Unmasked, the KISS album where, famously, KISS did not actually unmask. John, does this surprise you? Do they wear masks? I thought it was makeup. I mean, metaphorically unmasked. They did not show their makeup-less faces on the album called Unmasked. That doesn't surprise me now. Oh, okay, good. You're rolling with it. Did they bear their deepest souls? No, not that either. So on the album cover, there's like a comic strip kind of thing, and basically what they do is like there's a bunch of journalists, and they're like, ooh, take off the makeup, take off the makeup, and then they take off their masks, which are masks in the comic strip, and underneath... It's the same face. And what we learn, metaphorically, is that kiss, our kiss, all the way through. Having, uh, did you give me anything to listen to off of this album? Yes, yeah, Shandy, baby. Oh, okay. I hate this. <laughs> I hate this both from the description of the album and from the music that I listen to. You're just an unmasked hater? Yes. Well, for the record, that was a top ten hit in both Australia and New Zealand, as well as Austria and Norway. But you didn't like, you didn't like Shandy. Not particular. I, I, you know, as much as I'm a huge fan of Unmasked, Shandy's probably my least favorite song on that album. It's just, it was the first. So why did you give me the the thing you think is the worst? singles. The theme here is that John needs to experience 80s Kiss the way the populace did, by singles. Well, um, see, my original playlist for you was like three and a half hours long. God, fuck you. And I didn't think that was going to work. You're telling me they released more than three and a half hours of music in the 80s? That's yes. too much. Wow. Unsurprisingly, Australia, New Zealand, Austria, and Norway are all on my short list of places to relocate for my expat third act. That feels reasonable, actually. I support Thank you. that decision. I appreciate that. The point of all this is that Shandy probably is the worst song on an otherwise excellent album, but I like Shandy. It's okay. It's fine. Look, I definitely question the wisdom of Kiss kicking off the 80s with this particular choice of musical direction. I love Unmasked. And I think tunes like, for instance, the opening track, Is That You, or the third single, Tomorrow, are as great as anything in the entire Kiscography. Shandy, eh, not so much. But there are a lot of really great songs on this album, which is unarguably, admittedly, not a heavy metal album. Hey! It's not. It's not. I admit it. But it most definitely does deserve more love from KISS fans and pop music lovers everywhere. Aside, of course, from those wonderful hooligans across Oceana who wisely embraced this bad boy from the start. Love those people. Love them and their kangaroos. Of course, not everyone gets this album. Not everyone gets it. In fact, Paul Stanley has described Unmasked as, quote, a pretty crappy album and wimpy. Gene Simmons, meanwhile, called it, quote, a shitty album. <laughs> Look, I hate to ever disagree with Paul and Gene, but I think it's great. 
In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I think that Unmasked is the very single most underrated Kiss album of all time. I think we should trust creators. But not mothers. What if they're creators who are mothers? Well, what are they talking about? Their kids? Pretty unreliable when talking Ooh. about their own kids. Ah, you might say the same thing about songwriters' own songs. So, despite my love of Unmasked, I will admit, Vinnie Poncia's toothless production does the band no favors. Uh, it's problematic that Peter Chris is on the cover of the album, but doesn't actually play on it. Ooh, that is problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that honor went secretly to the same South African session drummer, Anton Fig, who you mentioned played on most of Dynasty. Yes, its U.S. chart position of number 35 was the lowest for the band since 1974, and it didn't even manage to go platinum. Oh, man! Hell, KISS only played one freaking show on the Unmasked Tour in America. Just one, which is not good. And yet, the songs are just freaking fun. I love it. I, I just totally love it. I always have. Oh, and one last fun and important fact. It was the Unmasked Tour where the world got its first look at the Fox. John, do you remember the Fox? Mm, no. We did a whole thing where we compared the Catman to the Fox. Oh... Uh, this would be, yeah, the, this maybe. is the makeup era alias of the dearly departed, world-beating, badass drummer, delightful, funny, and kind human being, and newly minted full-time Peter Chris replacement, Paul Caravello, who is better known to most as Eric Carr. who first joined up with Team Kiss on this very tour. So that's exciting, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay, so things in the 80s have started off a little weird, but fundamentally awesome. Things are now about to get considerably weirder and arguably less awesome. John, are you ready to hit rock bottom with Kiss? Sure. Now, I'm curious, are you aware that Rock Bottom is the name of an awesome classic Kiss tune from the 1975 album Dress to Kill? You know I'm not. Mmm, good tune. But I saw that it was in quotes, so I figured that was the joke. Ah, good. Great song. Amazing song. Moving on to that scariest of times. That time when Kiss decided to attempt to improve their waning fortunes via a lushly orchestrated, fantasy-themed, progressive rock concept album. God. John, are you excited? Maybe, maybe a little frightened? I mean, this, here's the thing is, like, that doesn't surprise me at all. Look at these guys. They're just theater nerds trying to be cool. Yeah, baby. What am I That's if not a theater I nerd trying like to be cool? That's why I like this. All right. All right. I maybe see a little bit of myself and my yeah, heroes from it Kiss. it totally tracks, and that's fine, and I'm not mad at you for liking Kiss. I am mad at you for insisting that it's good or heavy metal. <laughs> Can I just be mad at you for generally just being... Is that okay? That's fair, yeah. yeah, yeah. That okay. totally tracks. Well, I'm mad at you about that. Look, I'm a little frightened about this whole thing, too. But we're going to talk about music from The Elder. Actually, before we get too terribly deep into the strange outlier within the larger kiscography... No, we don't have to get into it at all. But you, we're going to... You were in charge here. We're we going to... just pretend it never happened. We're not going to do that. I've actually got an Eric autobiographical fun fact about music from The Elder. That is deeply concerning. Oh, yeah, it's great. Uh, music from The Elder was the very first compact disc I ever purchased as a young lad. 
When I was gifted my first CD player, a bar mitzvah present, incidentally, I already had a large KISS collection on cassette, but I'd never yet been able to track down The Elder. When I came across it on CD, I knew I had to snatch it up, and thus began my vast, and now utterly outmoded and useless, compact disc collection. Yes. Yeah? Totally useless. Yeah. Actually, I've got a somewhat slightly related, more general fun fact about this album as well. You see, KISS released Music from the Elder, their wildly ambitious attempt at an epic prog rock concept album, on November 10th of 1981. The version of the album that was released in the U.S., Europe, and Brazil was sequenced by the record label differently from the original intent of the band. Cost problematic. It does, right? Casablanca's album order emphasized two of the singles, The Oath, which they made the album opener, and A World Without Heroes, which opened side two of that version. This made commercial sense, but it also totally clusterfucked the intended narrative flow of the album. Which, right, problematic. Yeah, look, I'm not going to sit here and argue for a prog rock concept album, but it does seem like those need to be in you, a particular order. You want the, the story to actually make some modicum of sense, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, the version that I purchased on CD circa 1989 was this self-same resequenced version, and so that's how I originally came to know the album. These days, if you listen on Spotify, etc., you'll find the album with its original, band-intended, narratively more logical track sequence, which I must confess, I kind of hate. (gasps) Yeah? Yeah. Frankly, the band's intended ordering doesn't really make the story significantly clearer, and removing one of the few true rockers, the Oath, from its opening position means that the entire first half of The Elder is all very slow and very snoozy. So mayhaps, for the first time in recorded history, those record industry suits actually knew what they were doing. Okay, so I'm going to have you narrate the story of the elder. Oh, fuck me. In your sweet, dulcet tones, momentarily. Momentarily. But first, allow me to provide just a little bit of important background. As we've already noted from discussions of Unmasked and the subsequent tour, Kiss were professionally and artistically pretty damn lost in the early 80s. The original plan for this album was to get back to the basics and to create a straight-ahead, badass, hard-rock album in order to right the Kish ship. That is very much not what ended up happening. Instead, Kiss reunited with a then-ridiculously coked-out-of-his-mind Bob Ezrin, same super producer who had been responsible for all the classic Alice Cooper albums, Kiss's magnum opus from 1976, Destroyer, and, not long before these sessions began, a wee little album called The Wall by a wee little band called Pink Floyd. John, are you a fan of The Wall? I don't think I've ever actually listened to The Wall. In Holy its entirety. shit! Really? You've yeah. never seen the movie? No. Wow. It is a freaking masterpiece. Anyhow, instead of said straight ahead hard rock album, Kiss and Ezrin made the totally, entirely, completely logical decision to create a lavish, heavily orchestrated fantasy concept album, which was originally conceived as the soundtrack for an eventual epic film. This, incidentally, explains why the album was titled Music From the Elder. Of course, that film never happened, and the album went on to become a legendary, artistic, and commercial fiasco of absolutely epic proportions. Go team! John, I wanted you to drink rather deeply from the cup of the Elder, so instead of the singles, in this case, I provided you with the two opening tracks from the band's intended sequence. The brief instrumental orchestral overture titled Fanfare, and the batshit crazy tomfoolery of Paul Stanley's falsetto performance on Just a Boy. 
Both of these tracks heavily featured performances by the American Symphony Orchestra in material orchestrated by the late, great Michael Kamen. John, please, for the love of God, tell me what you thought of these tracks. I did not like these. <laughs> Despite the allusions to classical music beloved by us both? Yeah, no, it just, again, it just doesn't feel good. <laughs> Felt wrong? Yeah. A little dirty? Uh, just like cheap. Cheap? Yeah. Mm, okay. Just, just like it felt kind of careless and thoughtless. Yeah. And, and did not sound particularly compelling or well constructed. I think they were sort of muddling their way through something that none of them were quite prepared to see through to its bestest completion. Look, this album is so fucking weird. I'll be honest. I actually really liked The Elder when I was a kid. I was then ensconced in that small but not insignificant camp of KISS fans who think that music from The Elder is shamefully underrated. I really do think it helped to have the hard-rocking The Oath as the opening track. In the intended sequence, just everything feels so slow for so long. I mean, those are the first two tracks, what you heard. It's all more than a bit soporific. Uh, Ace Frehley was also not a fan. He actually didn't head up to Canada with the band, where they recorded much of the material with Ezrin. He remotely contributed two pretty okay songs, Dark Light and the instrumental Escape from the Island, but he was hardly involved with the project overall. He actually recorded his guitar parts at his house in Connecticut and then mailed them off to Ezrin. Uh, it's also worth noting that he was a full-blown alcoholic at this time and is not really in a great place overall. He also was really frustrated by the new political dynamic in the band. Although Eric Carr was now officially a member, he was contractually just an employee and so didn't get a vote on band decisions. As such, Ace found himself regularly outvoted 2-1 to one by Gene and Paul on all of the band decisions. Alas, Ace's days were numbered and he would be officially out of KISS by December of 1982. Incidentally, John, this is pretty much the same process by which you recorded your parts for our Halloween Spooktacular. So should I be concerned about your alcoholism and or future with the HM101 podcast? Well, were you dissatisfied with my work? No, it was excellent. It was... Uh, I think we're going to be fine. Oh, good. How's your drinking? I mean, more than years recently. Is that why you're so angry at moms? <laughs> No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. So the linchpin of this whole The Elder thing is the whole concept album thing. That is to say, this is a collection of songs that are intended to work together in service of a larger narrative story. As such, I think we should learn just what that story, as created by the demon himself, Mr. Gene Simmons, was. So, John, are you ready to tell us a story? Oh, boy. <laughs> okay, everybody, grab your popcorn and or perhaps a nice cozy blanket it's HM101 Storytime. When darkness gets too strong, a hero is born to restore the balance. Our story begins with the boy, who is to be recruited and trained by Morpheus, a representative of the Council of Elders, who, it should be noted, are a part of the mysterious Order of the Rose, whose mission is to combat evil, 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 evil. When we meet the boy, he is uncertain of his abilities and frightened of failure. 
Over the course of the album, he gains confidence, faces off, I guess, with the dreaded Mr. Blackwell, escapes from an island, apparently, and eventually reminds us that users are losers and losers are users, so don't do drugs. Or something. Regardless! We definitely know that at the end of all of this, Morpheus is optimistic that the boy is now ready to begin his odyssey, which does lead one to wonder what the fuck it was we've been doing over the course of the past 42 minutes of runtime. Great work, JM. Basically, as should now be clear, the concept is a complete clusterfuck. And while I've listened to this album hundreds of times, That's concerning. I still don't have the foggiest fucking clue what That's it's really all concerning. about. Uh, which leads me to another fun fact. While most of The Elder is credited to members of KISS and Bob Ezrin, no less a personage than Lou Reed, nay, of the Velvet Underground, and creator of super annoying pop hits like Walk on the Wild Side, was called in to lend accredited writing assist on three of the album's tracks, Dark Light, the single A World Without Heroes, and Mr. Blackwell. John, are you a Lou Reed and or Velvet Underground fan? Not particularly. Yeah, I can take him or leave him. But he's definitely not someone I think one would expect to pop up on the creative team for the most famously hated Kiss album of all time. What a world, no? This is just so confused. It's, <laughs> it's, just, I can, it's, it's when things like this happen, mm -hmm. you have to wonder how no one along the way just stopped and said, what the fuck are we doing? On that note, it will probably come as no surprise that Kiss didn't actually ever tour in support of this album. They performed just three promotional gigs. One on a TV show called Fridays, one on good old Solid Gold, and a lip-synced trio performance sans Ace Freely at Studio 54. So the album did not manage to achieve even a gold certification in the U.S. It peaked at, for Kiss, an extremely anemic number 75 on the pop charts. And yet, our good friends, best friends, really, at Rolling Stone magazine oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. had some surprising things to say about this album john would you they have a positive review to would this? you like to hear what the always reliable critics at rolling stone magazine thought about music from the elder i'm deeply concerned about what you're about to read to me critic jd considine wrote quote their new songs are catchy the performance is respectable and despite its concept music from the elder is better than anything that the group has recorded in years. Now then he does go on to say some less nice stuff, but he closes strong. Quote, For all its Marvel Comics predictability, however, music from The Elder comes off quite well. Rolling Stone, they've been loudly getting it completely fucking wrong since 1967. God love them. Now by contrast of The Elder, Gene Simmons said, quote, As a Kiss record, I'd give it a zero. As a bad Genesis record, I'd give it a two. Paul Stanley described The Elder as, quote, probably the biggest misstep of our whole musical career. It was everything that was wrong with us. It was pompous, contrived, self-important, and fat. Wow. How about them apples? Okay. Yeah, very, very honest self-reflection there. Yeah. I, I don't disagree, although I think there's a lot to like. There is value to be found here. I mean, I think Gene Simmons alluded to it. It's an interesting prog artifact it's not a successful Kiss album. So, John, these were the dark days, but I do believe I see a light up ahead. There is glorious hope on the horizon. 
Are you ready for KISS to finally get their shit together and to at last find new life artistically and commercially in the 1980s? I guess. Let's do it. Cue the positive music. A change is going to come. It's time to discuss the magnificent creatures of the night. Night, 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 night. But wait! A quick aside for the true KISS connoisseur. Before truly and definitively getting said shit together, KISS did have a few fleeting moments of necessary transitional material, as they were getting that their massive metaphorical musical ship turned around via an obscure non-US collection called Killers, which was released on June 15th, 1982. Now this was mostly a compilation album, a best of focusing on their more recent material, but it also included four new songs. I'm a Legend Tonight, Down on Your Knees, Nowhere to Run, and Partners in Crime. With Ace no longer an active participant, guitar for these new songs was performed by frequent KISS ghost collaborator, guitarist Bob Kulik. Rest in peace. Importantly, these new tracks were produced by one Michael James Jackson, who would also go on to produce the next two fabulous KISS albums. Although the four new tracks on Killers aren't generally fan favorites, I've always rather liked them. What can I say? I tend to have a soft spot for much of the more downtrodden KISS material. Regardless, I do think that this new material shows evidence of a band at last pointed in the right direction following the Elder Debolical. Okay, we now return to your regularly scheduled KISSography. Cue positive music again! John, I know that you've always dreamed of taking the reins and introducing the world to the history behind a KISS masterpiece. So I've written up a nice little script for you. Please do take us on a compelling journey of the mind and tell us a little something about this wondrous comeback album, The Mighty Creatures of the Night. According to Gene Simmons, quote, Creatures is the band realizing that we better get back to who we are. Kiss recorded Creatures of the Night in July through September of 1982. Although the image of Ace Frehley was included on the original cover, he did not participate in the writing or recording, and would officially be out of the band by the end of the year. Oh man! The most critical new addition for this recording was guitarist and songwriter Vinnie Vincent. who was at first just hired in a session musician capacity. He was originally just one of a number of guitarists brought in to play on Creatures of the Night. Eventually, however, Vincent officially joined Kiss as their new guitarist, gloriously made up as the Ankh Warrior. Now that's exciting! Welcome to the party, Vinny. You're a fucking weirdo, but we still love you. Creatures of the Night was released on October 25th, 1982. There were three singles, I Love It Loud, Killer, and the title track. John, I included both I Love It Loud and that title track on your playlist. Now this is Kiss at their very most metallic. So what did you think? What do you think I thought? I think you loved it. I don't remember them. Oh my God. 24 hours later. Well, at least this sounds like metal compared to the last thing. So, you're willing to admit there's a bit of heavy metal to be found in there? That, uh, yes. 
Creatures is a fantastic album. And while I do think the follow-up, Lick It Up, is even a bit stronger, this is still certainly one of the very best albums Kiss ever made. In any decade. I have a fun Creatures fact for you. You may recall that Lou Reed made a surprise cameo as a songwriter on Music from the Elder. Do you recall that? I do. It was like two minutes ago. Excellent. This time, our wacky surprise cameo comes from a young and still unknown Canadian songwriter named Brian Adams, who co-wrote two great songs on this album, Rock and Roll Hell and War Machine. Sean, are you a Brian Adams fan? I know that name, but I can't place it. I knew you were going to be fucking ignorant. Summer of 69, Heaven. (sighs) It's great stuff from our neighbors to the north. Okay, we need to hear some frickin' music. Well, Unmasked and the Elder are probably not essential releases for any but the hardiest of Kiss fans. Creatures of the Night is a true blue shit kicker, and everyone should check it out. The most famous tune is probably I Love It Loud, but my personal favorite is the opening title track, which immediately announced a revamped, re-energized Kiss fully ensconced in a state-of-the-art 1980s traditional metal sound. If you've never heard the song Creatures of the Night, you are in for a freaking treat. So pause the show, click on the link, and listen to Kiss bash the doors down and announce... We're back! God damn! I fucking love that song. I love this whole album. But here's the thing about Creatures of the Night. It is pretty universally beloved by KISS fans, and it most definitely righted that ship artistically, But commercially, things were still a bit askew. The album did manage to go gold, but that was it. It only peaked at number 45 on the U.S. charts. That's much better than its predecessor, but not quite legit comeback-type business for a band of Kiss's prior stature. Additionally, while Kiss did tour this album, that tour was famously something of a bust. There were a lot of half-empty arenas, and even some shows canceled due to slow sales. There also, apparently, were lots of 80s religious types protesting out on the road and claiming that KISS stood for Knights in Satan's Service. And saying that the band should be boycotted. John, do you think that KISS are an evil force in league with Satan? No. (laughs) Pretty funny. Satanic panic. Yeah. Yeah, this was a time where people could be scared of KISS. Alas, it had become clear that making great music alone wouldn't quite be enough for KISS to fully make it back into the spotlight. So, John, whatever do you think a bunch of magical supermen in clown makeup could do to shake things up and finally find new commercial life in the 1980s? Please don't tell me they tried to make another movie. (laughs) No, 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 no. Paul and Gene knew what they had to do. And in June of 1983, Kiss played their last shows in makeup in front of 137,000 screaming fans in Brazil. A new era was dawning. There was an electricity in the air. Okay, onwards. We rejoin our story on September 18th, 1983, when Kiss shocked the world, appearing in public without makeup for the very first time on MTV. John, in order to recreate some sense of this glorious moment, I present you two images. The first is the original Kiss lineup in makeup at the height of their powers. Beautiful, right? Those are choices. Yeah, you like that? Big, bold choices. Oh, so beautiful. Well, the second 
features the 1983 lineup, newly shorn of their superhero duds and kabuki-style makeup. You ready for this glorious revelation? Sure. Here goes. John, how does all of this make you feel? Does a kiss without all of their 70s-era accoutrement still have the ability to wow you? Or is this simply a bridge too far for you? These look like sad people. They do not look healthy. <laughs> Uh, I've realized the 80s had an aesthetic, and they are not out of that aesthetic, but these two in the middle look medically unwell, <laughs> and this person looks angry and lost. So basically, it might quite reasonably be argued that the dudes from KISS didn't look particularly great in the highly colorful 80s glam regalia and drag-esque makeup as found in that particular photo. Is that fair? Yeah. And yet... The unmasking publicity, alongside the release of album number 11, Lick It Up, were just what the doctor ordered. Kiss were back, baby, and suddenly in the very thick of the 1980s pop-slash-traditional metal pack. Huzzah! Let's talk about this fabulous freaking album, shall we? Okay. Yeah. My God, do I love this album. Although true old-school Kissites may snicker, I think a good faith argument can readily be made for Lick It Up as top down the very best album Kiss ever made. Ooh, you suck! Regardless, it is most definitely the sound of a Kiss reborn, reinvigorated, and now fully a part of the popular heavy metal explosion of the early 1980s. It is also their first album officially released on a new label, Mercury. A fresh new start. Everyone needs a fresh start now and again, no? Sure. Yeah, Kiss sure did. Mind you, this is the Kiss that I came of age with, and this is probably one of the reasons I am so very committed to the notion of Kiss as a heavy metal band. Haters be damned. Or maybe that's too harsh. But haters should definitely be put to bed without their supper, or at least without a second portion of dessert. But I digress. Anyhow, Kiss released Lick It Up on September 22, 1983, just three short days after the televised unmasking. Vinnie Vincent was kind of sort of an official member at this point, more on that vague status later. So to be clear, Kiss in 1983 was Paul Stanley, rhythm guitar and voice, Gene Simmons, bass and voice, Vinnie Vincent, lead guitar, and Eric Carr, drums. And all four of these dudes were actually correctly featured on the Lick It Up album cover. A cynic might note that, excepting the solo albums, this is the first Kiss album cover to accurately represent who was actually playing on the album since Love Gun back in 1977. Yikes! That said, John, do be sure to keep an eye on that lead guitar slot. It's going to prove something of a moving target. Frankly, playing lead guitar in 1980s Kiss was rather like teaching defense against the dark arts at Hogwarts, school of witchcraft and wizardry. I get that joke. Good! I thought you might. It's a joke of the 21st century. So this beautiful gem of an album was again co-produced by Michael James Jackson, alongside Paul and Gene, who will be hereafter taking increasing control of album production, for better or worse. There were two singles, the title track, which is an iconic classic and live staple, and All Hell's Breaking Loose, one of my own personal favoritest Kiss songs, which includes an amazing riff, which was actually written by drummer Eric Carr, and features Paul Stanley doing arguably the best rapping of his storied career. Now, John, I didn't include Kiss Rap on your playlist because I figured you'd be a total dick about it. I did, however, include the song Lick It Up. What do you think about that one? So, 
this doesn't sound as metal as the last album. Yeah, I think that's fair. Lick It Up is the very first step, particularly that song. The album as a whole is pre- actually pretty heavy, but is the first step going from this traditional metal of Creatures of the Night to like a clear glam metal slash things that John doesn't think, or a lot of people don't think of as heavy metal in this day and age. And therefore shouldn't be discussed on this podcast. (laughs) But the album as a whole actually is a heavy metal album, I think. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm, That would mm -hmm. be difficult to argue. Mm -hmm. Well, it'd be particularly hard if you only heard the one track that was apparently not metal. I'm happy to pause this recording process so you and I can sit and listen to the entirety of the album. I just feel like as the curator of my knowledge, you're, you're, you're making it harder on yourself. You might say I'm setting you up to fail, John. I feel like it's really setting yourself up to fail because you're the one that gets stressed out by me arguing with you. I'm not stressed out! Look, I love that song. Although I really do think every track on this album is great. It's certainly one of the most complete Kiss albums ever. There's just no real weak links. It would also be the last Kiss album for quite a while to include a fully artistically engaged Gene Simmons. If any of our listeners are curious about where to start with exploring the music of 80s Kiss, I would say without reservation that this is the place. John, you were curious about that, right? I was so curious Mm -hmm, about that. mm -hmm. So this is the place. Frankly, there are others who might argue for Creatures of the Night, which is also really excellent, but I do personally think that Lick It Up is the best Kiss album of the 1980s. So we're done? No. No. So you're you're saying it's all going to go downhill from here? Yes. That is correct. That was a pretty short peak. Yes. Yikes. Another thing that is also definitely worth noting, unlike its predecessor, Lick It Up actually had no outside songwriters. It's all kiss, through and through, as Hades intended. So that's nice, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, collaboration's fine, whatever. Yeah, they both have value, but it's nice that their best album is internally produced. Uh, Actually, there is one tiny snippet of imported talent on this album, which leads us to our Lick It Up fun fact. The one guest musician who was brought in was guitarist Rick Derringer, who played the solo on the barn-burning opener, Exciter. Derringer has had a truly storied career, but it all began with him as one of the founding members of the garage rock band The McCoys, who are best remembered for their delightful fun rock hit, Hang On Sloopy. Hang on, Sloopy, Sloopy, hang on. John, are you a Hang on, Sloopy fan or what? None of the words you've said in the last minute have meant anything to me. (laughs) It's a great song. It's a fun fact. Yay! Okay, so Lick It Up was the album that truly turned Kiss's fortunes around. Both singles got a ton of airplay as goofy, post-apocalyptic MTV videos, and the album charted all around the world, went gold almost instantly, and eventually returned the band to platinum status. Kiss, we're back, baby! And I think a good-faith argument could be made that the theoretically official edition of Vinnie Vincent, who co-wrote eight of the ten songs, had a whole lot to do with it. And yet, there were issues. See, John, Vinnie Vincent was and is a fucking crazy lunatic. Were you aware of this? No. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, indeed. He is legendarily nuts. 
For reasons that have never been entirely clear, Vincent never actually signed his contract to be in the band. Additionally, throughout the Lick It Up tour, he managed to repeatedly piss off the rest of the band by consistently extending his guitar solo spots in live sets well beyond the planned duration. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eventually, this led to backstage fisticuffs between Vincent and Stanley and an on-stage incident in March of 1984 when Vincent randomly broke out into an arbitrary shredding guitar solo right in the middle of the set's finale. This was the point of no return, and Vincent was either fired or quit, depending on who you ask. Now, John, does this story get your wheels spinning? Are you going to just start randomly speaking virtuosically in the middle of one of our episodes until I'm forced to fire you? No. What would I, like... I don't know, just, like, reciting poetry with great elegance? That could be fun. Yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. Okay. Anyway, the Vinnie Vincent era was over after two great albums. Sigh. But we continue onwards. Shall we resume our peek beyond the mystical curtain of the past and see what came next for our beloved heroes? I guess we must. <laughs> Enter Mark St. John. Briefly. Vanishingly briefly. Oh, and also welcome to the beginning of the era of what I like to call Paul Stanley's Kiss. <laughs> during which time Gene had his head pretty dang far up his ass, and Paul was truly the only one left to steer the HMS kiss through choppy mid-1980s pop metal waters. Buckle up. It's going to be a sexually charged punny ride. Oh. All righty. It's now time for the delightful diptych of Animal Eyes, released on September 17th, 1984, and Asylum, released on September 16th, 1985. That's right. We're talking two albums for the price of one. Now, how's that for efficiency? I'll believe it when I see it. Well, these albums have a ton in common. Both are albums where Gene was pretty much completely checked out, working on an acting career that never quite meaningfully materialized. Gasp. Both were produced by Paul, although Gene did technically get a production credit on Asylum. Both served to position the band more in the pop glam end of the metal spectrum than within the more traditional metal sound of the prior two albums. And lastly, both have some amazing songs nested alongside some utterly forgettable filler. I'm looking at you, Mr. Simmons. John, let's split up duties here. You give us the fast facts on Animal Eyes, and I'll do the same for Asylum. Does this seem fair? Sure. All right. Let her rip. As previously mentioned, Animal Eyes was released in September of 1984. The lineup consisted of Stanley Simmons Carr and new guitarist Mark St. John, a Southern California-based guitar teacher who knew little about the band prior to joining. Brief interruption. Sorry. The Mark St. John story is weird, sad, a little confusing, and worthy of telling. St. John was actually only in the band from April through November of 1984. It's just that this swath happens to have included the May through July recording sessions for Animal Eyes, solidifying his small but important place in history. Though there is a lot of great stuff on Animal Eyes, St. John never really musically fit in with the band, and his mile-a-minute shredding improvisations and apparent inability to recall what he had just played caused some difficulties in the studio. More importantly still, during this time, St. John developed Raiders Syndrome, a rare form of joint arthritis. This led to him needing to be temporarily replaced at the outset of the subsequent Animalized tour by a soon-to-be-important character named Bruce Kulik, the brother of longtime KISS session ace Bob. More on him shortly. When St. John was at last up to it, KISS made an effort to have him join up with the tour, but it simply never quite worked 
and he was replaced permanently by Kulik on December 8, 1984. Now, for the curious, Kiss actually released a recording of one of the few St. John live shows as Kiss Off the Soundboard, live in Poughkeepsie, New York, 1984, in April of 2023. The sound is a bit rough, but it is an important and interesting historical artifact. Postscript! St. John's time in Kiss was pretty weird and sad, but he didn't got nothing on his weirder, sadder final act. On September 14th of 2006, St. John was arrested for possession of drug paraphernalia, attempted destruction of evidence, and resisting arrest. While in prison, some sort of shit went south, and St. John was badly beaten and stabbed with pencils by a large group of inmates. His health never seems to have truly recovered, and he died shortly after being released from prison on April 5th, 2007, of what was formally listed as a brain hemorrhage caused by an accidental overdose of methamphetamine. So, yikes, right? Yeah. Ugh. Rest in peace, Mark. Okay, sorry. Please continue with the much more pleasant Animalize background info. The lead-off single from Animalize, Heavens on Fire, was released just two days after the album. Heavens on Fire was a co-write between Paul Stanley and everyone's favorite song doctor, Desmond Child, and it quickly rose to become one of the most beloved songs in the KISS canon. The video also got heavy MTV airplay. This particular ditty also has the dubious honor of having been Eric's very favorite song in his tween slash early teenage years. I was indeed a very big fan of this song, and although it no longer is a personal fave, I do still find it quite charming. John, what did you think of Heavens on Fire and its famously accidental opening yodel? It's pretty generic. You're pretty generic. Yeah, sure. But I don't try to make money by selling myself to the mass public. You sell yourself sexually to individuals. No. <laughs> Mostly moms. No. <laughs> Is that why you hate moms so much? We can talk about it. You can open up to us. We're all friends here. <laughs> So you don't love Heavens on Fire. It is, it's a little it's generic. Fine. It's an it 80s. sounds like any of the hundreds of other songs written during that decade that were just, like, fine. Wow. I think it's a little beyond fine. But, but I get it. I get it. I get it. It's of its time, I guess. Uh, now, said yodel is the subject of yet another fun fact. So much fun today. You see, the opening yodel was actually just a warm-up exercise Paul was doing between his first and second vocal takes. It just happened to get caught on tape and to flow absolutely perfectly into the opening riff, and so they kept it. Serendipity, no? Sure. Well, if nothing else, this listening experience really should make you feel tremendously bonded with 13-year-old Eric. You're a lucky man, John. Anyhow, I'll let you finish now. I promise. On the strength of passionate fans like young Eric, Animalize charted all around the world, peaking at number 19 in the U.S. and obtaining platinum certification. All this just goes to show that KISS didn't need Gene Simmons to remotely give a fuck in order to still manage to put together a legit hit album. Mind you, this is a KISS release with such delightfully titled Gene Pen numbers as Burn Bitch Burn, featuring lyrics including such poetical musings as, quote, I want to put my log in your fireplace. So, so there's, there's that. <laughs> I thought you'd like that one. <laughs> That's a good line. Animalize was produced by Paul Stanley, and he really was 100% the captain steering the KISS ship at this point. And now, my turn. It's asylum time, baby. In case you've lost count, this was lucky album number 13. 
As I've already implied, Asylum is very much a sister album to Animalize. Both are particularly Paul-centric, and both are a bit transitional, as we see Kiss in the process of moving from the traditional metal of Creatures and Lick It Up towards an ever-glamier pop metal style. This was a musical style, I should note, which was very much influenced by 70s Kiss at its core. Kiss! Influencing the new generation, and then, in turn, being influenced by bands like Motley Crue et al. Wild Times. Anywho, Asylum was released on September 16th of 1985. The main special thing of note about this album, aside from it having a few total bangers on it, is that this was the first recording on which the most significant 80s Kiss lineup finally fully crystallized. Bruce Kulick, who had quietly done some session work on Animal Eyes before replacing Mark St. John on that tour, officially joined up as the new lead guitarist, a position he would hold all the way up until the original lineup reunion in 1996, which, never fear, we shall not be discussing today. Thank God. Actually, now is a good time for a last roll call as we've assembled the final and arguably most important of the many 80s KISS lineups. John, tell us who KISS would be for the next 10 years, give or take. Paul Stanley, vocals and rhythm guitar. Gene Simmons, vocals and bass. Bruce Kulick, lead guitar and backing vocals. Eric Carr, drums, backing vocals. Live Peter Chris vocal parts. And eventually, one day, but not quite yet, lead vocals on an album track. 80s Kiss Baby. Although there were three MTV videos, Who Wants to Be Lonely, Uh, All Night, and Tears Are Falling. Sorry, what was that middle one? Uh, All Night. That's fun, right? You want to try it? Are you sure it's not Uh, All Night? Uh, All Night. Uh, All Night. Hmm. I've heard it both ways. Uh, the only official single was Tears Are Falling, which is one of my all-time favorite Kiss songs. I was listening to it when you arrived at our recording session today. Oh. John, this was on your playlist. What did you think? Mom rock. And, and we like moms? Yeah, look. We are in support of mothers? Mothers have a lot that they have to struggle with. Our society in America does not help or support them in many ways. It does not. And so if they want to listen to music that sounds like high-waisted jeans, that's fine. Music that sounds like high-waisted jeans. The John McKeever story. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've often reflected that if one just trimmed the fat from both Animalize and Asylum and combined the stronger moments, we would be left with a single masterpiece instead of two inconsistent but occasionally really great albums. That said, I do think the best songs on Asylum, particularly Tears Are Falling and Who Wants to Be Lonely, are among Kiss's finest work. Please allow me to offer just a few last bits of fun Asylum trivia before we move on. One, the very glammy cover featuring stylized portraits of each band member's face wearing a different, vividly colored lipstick plays on the same color schemes as the four 1978 solo albums with Gene in red, Paul in purple, Bruce replacing Ace in blue, and Eric replacing Peter in green. Two, as if that weren't enough, their heads are placed into the same configuration as the heads were on the Dynasty cover back from 1979. So many callbacks! Three. Lastly, in a callback all our own, 
Jean Beauvoir, former bassist of beloved HM101 band The Plasmatics, featuring the late great Wendy O. Williams, has co-writing credits on both Who Wants to Be Lonely and Uh All Night, and played bass and sung backing vocals on both those tracks. Yay! Those are fun and compelling little details, no? Sure. Remember the Plasmatics? No. With the chainsaw and the song apart the guitar? Oh, I remember talking about the chainsaw, yes. Great stuff! Moving on. Kistery is the gift that keeps giving. Asylum kept the Kiss train a-rolling along, peaking at number 20 on the Billboard charts and going gold. Okay, so John, before moving on to the next official release, would you mind terribly if I take just one brief moment to speak directly to just the truly passionate Kiss heads out there in podcast land? If any of them have made it this far, you go for it. Oh, thank you. All right, you can take a short nap. Thank you. Relax. Hello there, fellow devoted KISS aficionados. Welcome to the KISS Army corner of this episode, where we briefly revel in a bit of esoterica, the KISS videography. As much as I might love to, I'm not able to devote any serious time to the lovely collection of home videos KISS were releasing at this time. I will, however, here and now, just quickly mention that Animalize Live Uncensored was released on April 19, 1985, and is a delightful window into what mid-80s KISS were like live. KISS Exposed was released on May 18, 1987, and is a ton of fun. It is pretty unarguably the greatest thing ever. It was most definitely among my personal favorite things in all the world throughout much of my youth. Highly recommended. And lastly, Crazy Nights, the video collection, was released on June 6, 1988, and is simply a collection of three MTV videos from that album. As such, it doesn't really accomplish much of significant interest for the modern KISS fan with YouTube access, unless you happen to be an avid collector of physical media. Okay, so ends KISS Videography Corner with Eric. John, wake up! Oh, hey, sorry. Casual fans and haters, we're back. You can take the earmuffs off as we get back into the waning years of the 80s kisscography. So let's get crazy. Let's have ourselves some crazy nights. John, does that sound like fun? Mm. You gotta love crazy, crazy nights. Which is true whether you're talking about the Kiss album, Crazy Nights, the classic Kiss song, Crazy, Crazy Nights, or just any really delightful fun night spent palling around with my good buddy John. Aww. You know, HM101 fans, People try to take my soul away, but I don't hear the rap that they all say. They try to tell us that we don't belong. That's all right. We're millions strong. This is my music. It makes me proud. These are my people, and this is my crowd. Woo! John, have these words of wisdom, which were originally penned by Paul Stanley and Adam Mitchell, inspired you? I mean, it's... it's Inspirational. Pretty, like, uh, moving. High school diary quality level of uh, emotional content. Why do you gotta hurt? <laughs> These, of course, are the lyrics to the lead off single, Crazy, Crazy Nights, from the album Crazy Nights, which was released on September 21st, 1987. Now, this is another somewhat controversial album in the Kiss catalog. That's catalog with a K, of course about which I have some fairly controversial, that's controversial with a K, of course, as well, uh, opinions. John, from where we sit, Kiss are about to go the full Monty, re-pop metal, synthetic 80s production, and full frontal keyboards. Do you think you can handle this epic pop metal explosion? I suppose I have no choice. You have no choice. 
you're you're trapped, but excited, right? Sure. It's a thrill ride. Just dripping with excitement. Dripping. Firstly, a bit of our patented HM101 historical context. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Paul Stanley, in the 1995 book, Kistory, relays an instructive incident. Fuck you, Paul. (laughs) Fuck you. From this period. John, could you momentarily channel Paul for us and tell us all about it from his perspective? We were in the parking lot one day and I said to Gene, look, you're off doing all these other things while still reaping the benefits of this band and I'm getting screwed. It's not fair for me to put in this kind of time while somebody else who is supposed to be my partner is not. And Gene looked at me and said, that's fair. I could have used Gene's input, but my attitude at that point was that I certainly wasn't going to listen to a guy who's off managing cabaret singers and producing five bands while I was trying to make an album. So Gene is still off in La La Land while Paul continues to captain the HMS Kiss solo. However, for Crazy Nights, Kiss brought in an outsider, producer Ron Nevison who had recently given Ozzy Osbourne his own coating of ultra-polished 80s pop metal sheen on his 1986 album, The Ultimate Sin, and was now ready to apply this same treatment to Kiss. Before we go any further, jump. I offered up two of three singles for your listening pleasure, the aforementioned Crazy Crazy Nights and Reason to Live, a power ballad which is a pretty perfect representation of what the Stanley-slash-Desmond Child writing team was up to in this period. So anthemic. John, this here is some seriously high 80s pop metal kiss. How did it sit with you? I mean, pop is the word. Very poppy. It's pop. It, this, is, this is not heavy. All right, so an interesting thing about Crazy Nights is if you listen to the Crazy Nights demos, which obviously only crazy kiss fans do, but if you listen to the Crazy Nights demos, it's actually considerably more rugged. It, it's very polished on the album. It's very pop. It's pop metal. Metal at its most gleaming, Death Leopardish. That era, the era that you don't really uh, feel comfortable labeling heavy metal. Yeah, because it doesn't sound like heavy metal. <laughs> Look, I, I said I'd be controversial, with a K, and now is the time. Crazy Nights is a hill I'm willing to die on. I love this album. You can love it. I love no it. No one is telling you you can't love it. You uh, just can't call it heavy metal. Look, I love every sappy, polished bone in its schmaltzy, keyboard-laden body. Keyboards which were played, incidentally, by the late, great Phil Ashley. Anyhow, a tiny bit of autobiographical context is probably helpful here. You see, Crazy Nights was the shiny, new Kiss album when I first became a fan at the tender age of 11. As such, I have a particularly strong nostalgic affinity for it that maybe, just maybe, colors my opinion. That said, John, you surely would agree that due to my official status as expert, everyone always should take my opinions very, very seriously, right? Uh, To quote John Hodgman, nostalgia is a toxic impulse. It's probably fair. Anyhow, all that having been said, I still do think that like Aerosmith's contemporary permanent vacation, Crazy Nights is an excellent example of a more mature band taking to the glammy pop metal idiom and showing those younger whippersnappers how it's done. I mean, maybe, just maybe the keyboards are a bit much on a tune like My Way, and maybe, just maybe, Paul Stanley sings unnecessarily high from time to time on this album. 
But still, I genuinely really do like every song on the album and think that along with Unmasked, this is among the most seriously underappreciated masterpieces in the catalog. <laughs> with a K. Now, John, are you willing to accept my opinions or do you think I should officially resign my expert status in disgrace? You have qualified this just enough to be about Kiss and not specifically mentioned heavy metal, so for now, you can keep going. I'm still here, people. So regardless, Crazy Nights continued Kiss's 80s hot streak, with the album going platinum and peaking at number 18 on the U.S. charts. It's also worth noting that Crazy Crazy Nights, the single, was huge in the U.K., peaking at number 4 on the singles charts there. Now those crazy Brits love their crazy nights, no? Sure. Yeah. That and calling savory foods pudding. Mm -hmm. God love them. Mm -hmm. So KISS were rocking and all is well. It's probably fair to note here that KISS fans do tend to grumble that there was something of a half-assed quality about the Crazy Nights World Tour, which featured shorter sets and smaller stagecraft budgets than KISS were usually known for. This was something that would be fully rectified on their legendary, massive, subsequent world tour, which just happened to coincide with the very first time I saw KISS live, which was September 13th, 1990. So that's nice for me. Also, I still have the freaking t-shirt I bought at the concert. How cool is that? Mm. John, uh, when was your first KISS concert? I have never seen KISS. <sighs> Such a wasted life. Okay then, this is the final push. I'm not going to talk much about the greatest hits ah! album, Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits. I'm not, because I know that John is going to get super grumpy if I don't put him down for a nap soon. Still, just a couple quick, important facts about that before our big finish. Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits was released on November 15, 1988, and contained a mix of 80s hits and remixed 70s classics, as well as a lovely new version of the song, Beth, sung by Eric Carr. It also included two new Paul Stanley songs, Let's Put the X in Sex and, parentheses, You Make Me, close parentheses, Rock Hard. Oh. John, how do you like those titles? They both suck. Unsurprisingly, I must confess to having a great deal of affection for both of those tracks, even though they aren't generally much beloved by KISS fans or by the band members themselves have these days. Have you noticed that the theme of this episode is you liking things that everyone else hates? I have noticed that, yes. Does that not give you pause to reconsider? It makes me feel like a tiger trapped in a corner. Just ready to burst out with KISS enthusiasm. Ugh. Kiss-thasm. Shut up. You stop that. You cut that from this fucking episode. <laughs> now, according to Paul Stanley, quote, I think the new song's written for that blow. I think they really <laughs> suck. <laughs> I thought you'd like that quote. I feel like you and Paul Stanley I would really like get Paul along. I feel like Paul Stanley and I might be friends, yeah. <laughs> ah, well. Me, I think they're both a lot of fun. But I think by now, we have firmly established that I tend to have a soft spot for many of the ugly ducklings found in the KISS catalog. That's the kindest way anyone has ever confessed to having bad taste. I am what I am, John. Particularly worth noting is that Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits went double platinum, peaking at number 21 on the Billboard charts. Apparently, a lot of people were enthused by the idea of a compilation which included the best of 70s and 80s KISS. I know that I was, and I remember enthusiastically purchasing a cassette copy at a music store in lovely downtown San Francisco right around the time it came out. Okay, enough. John, 
You've been a real sport today. Mm. This is a lot of kiss for any mere mortal, let alone a weak half-man such as yourself. How are you holding up? What is my other half? Duck. <laughs> I've got some good news for you. Mm -hmm. We're now at our final stop on this crazy, crazy ride. Hey. Let's welcome in the final kiss release of the 1980s, motherfucking hot in the motherfucking shade. <laughs> Or, but more clearly, Hot in the Shade. John, the finale. You excited? Let's get it. Big finish. Well, there are just a few things worthy of preliminary note. First, this is yet another one of those not generally beloved entries in the catalog. Surprise, surprise. Uh, while most KISS fans do seem to remember this tour really fondly, I think that the general fan consensus on this album could be summed up as follows. First, the good. Hot in the Shade is the sound of a band that was clearly in the process of writing the ship artistically and correcting course after the arguably overly polished pop-slash-glam of their most recent outings. Also, Gene Simmons was finally engaged once again, and this does show in the quality of his songwriting herein, which is the best it had been since Lick It Up. Also, we finally get an album track sung by Eric Carr, who sounds great singing lead on the penultimate track, Little Caesar. Now, I could be wrong. Is that about pizza? It is not. Well, it is not. Missed opportunity. It really is. Grand tie-in would have been great for everybody. Now, I could be wrong, but I do think most KISS fans would agree that those are the positive attributes of this album. And now my stab at the fan consensus negative. Hot in the Shade is way the fuck too long. There are 15 songs spread over nearly 59 minutes. No matter how you slice it, not all of those songs are of equal quality, and this could have been a much stronger album with some judicious editing. John, do you feel like you have a deeper understanding now of what members of the KISS Army, generally, tend to think about Hot in the Shade? From zero to one. Good! Okay, so here and now I will confess that this album does hold a tremendously special place in my heart. Oh my god, we are all shocked. As my KISS album. Aww. My new Kiss album. You see, Crazy Nights was already out when I became a Kiss fan. And while the release of Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits was exciting, at the end of the day, it really was just a compilation. Hot in the Shade was the first Kiss album I ran out and purchased on the day it came out. Which, incidentally, was October 17th, 1989. Which happens to also have been the day of the massive Loma Prieta earthquake in the Bay Area. Fun fact. I was actually listening to Hot in the Shade for the first time when the earth quite literally moved. Anyhow, there was an extended period of time when this was my favorite album in the world, and I could hear none of its flaws. These days, I'm able to listen considerably more objectively. I doubt that. And it no longer ranks among my favorite Kiss albums. That said, I still do very much enjoy most of this album. Hell, I even like what is most definitely one of the most derided Kiss songs ever, Read My Body, which prominently features Paul Stanley rapping a bunch of deliriously goofy sexual literary puns. That sounds awful. Oh, that so sounds good. truly awful. <laughs> I do, however, also think that it is too long, and I don't particularly care for either of the final two songs. The much-loved Little Caesar. Not er about pizza. No, not about pizza. Eric Carr really does sound great on it. I just don't much care for the song. Would you like it more if it was about pizza? I would. And the not terribly memorable faux Van Halen-esque boomerang, which closes the album. Still, Hide Your Heart, Betrayed, Silver Spoon, King of Hearts. There are a ton of songs here 
I absolutely adore. How about you, John? What did you think of Hide Your Heart and Forever? Two of the singles from Hot in the Shade, which I included at the end of your magical playlist. So, I mean, in the sense that it is less keyboard-centric, mm -hmm. it is less pop-y, yeah, and yeah. the sound is slightly more towards what you would classify as metal things, yes. but the songs uh, still feel pretty, like, uh, to me. Like, uh, all night? Uh. All right, all right. Well, I can actually offer fun facts about both of these songs. Oh, boy. A double fun fact. Oh, great. You ready? Hide Your Heart, which was co-written by Paul Stanley, Desmond Child, and Holly Knight, was released by four, yes, four, separate artists, all in the year 1989. The same song? Same song. Interesting. Kiss, Molly Hatchett, Robin Beck, and... Oddly, former Kiss guitarist Ace Frehley, who recorded a version for his solo album, Trouble Walking. How fucking crazy is that? It does seem odd that they could sell it to all those various artists yeah, at once. It's crazy. As if that weren't enough, the song was actually first recorded one year earlier by the great Bonnie Tyler. Hmm. Yeah, that's five versions over two years. So wild for what was originally a song rejected by the band for inclusion on Crazy Nights. Uh, I love Hide Your Heart, and while the narrative of Johnny, Rosa, and Tito may be more than a tad bit cheesy, to my mind it's the good, chill-inducing, high-80s sort of cheesy. John, were you moved by the tragic ending when a, quote, shot rang out like thunder and the blood was on her hands with nothing won? No. You weren't moved? No. Well, John, when someone lies dying, lovers finally understand, you know? Mm -hmm. Okay then, on to Forever's fun fact. Firstly, worth noting is that this was Kiss's biggest hit single since Beth, from all the way back in 1976. The people do love a freaking ballad, don't they? I guess. Yeah. More importantly, for fun fact purposes, Forever was a co-write between Paul Stanley and everyone's favorite curly-haired, swoon-inducing soft rocker, Michael freaking Bolton. John, were you expecting a Michael Bolton cameo on HM101 today? I was not. You know who Michael Bolton is? I do. Oh, good! These are truly exciting times. Frankly, I think the world needs more Hot in the Shade. So let's give everyone a taste of vintage late 80s kiss via a final listening break, shall we? Sure. Yay! I dedicate this one to my good buddy Ross, who never much cared for kiss, but always had a real soft spot for this song. Here's a little hide your heart to inspire and move you all. Everybody, pause the podcast, click on the link, and enjoy the best version of this great song, as well as the delightful narrative MTV video which accompanied it. We'll be back with you momentarily for the compelling conclusion of this episode. What can I say, John? I'm just a sucker for a good non-lexical vocable in a pop song. You? No. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what that is? Uh, no. Okay, now for those of you not in the know, a non-lexical vocable is the sort of nonsense syllable we often associate with Christmas carols. Tra-la-la, for instance. Or in this case, ah-ah-ah-ah, hey-hey-hey, do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do-do. That is the thing that you're a sucker for. Great stuff. You're a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, just the last few hot in the shade details before we wrap all of this up. 
First the good. Hot in the Shade peaked at number 29 on the U.S. charts and was certified gold. Now the very, very bad. Sadly, this would be Eric Carr's final album with the band. He was diagnosed with heart cancer in early 1991 and died on November 24th of that year. Even after I had lost some of my youthful passion for KISS, I did keep a little Eric Carr shrine up in my bedroom all throughout my high school years. He was, and still is, sorely missed. Interestingly, Hot in the Shade also featured a modest contribution from current KISS guitarist replacement spaceman Tommy Thayer, who co-wrote and played on both Betrayed and The Street Giveth and The Street Taketh Away. Maybe more importantly, in the MTV video for the opener, Rise to It, in the opening sequence we see Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons applying the legendary KISS makeup for the first time since the Creatures of the Night tour. This was really just a little tease, but the original lineup, fully made-up reunion, was just six short years in the future, and I think a good faith argument could be made that the excitement that this little scene generated was perhaps the very first teeny tiny step in that direction. But that, my fine-feathered friend, is a story for another day. John, how's it hanging, my friend? To be or not to be. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the snares oh and arrows of it's happening. fortune, Stop. or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing You're end. fired! Hey, look, in candor, I want you to know how proud I am of you. We've talked a whole lot of KISS today. You've done some real top-notch co-hosting. Mm. You about ready to wrap this thing up? Let's do it. I think you've earned it. Why don't you quickly tell the nice people where to contact us so they can request future... Wait, there's no bow on the episode? It's just that guy died and then, and then we say, okay, we're done? I think a loving memorial to Eric Carr is a fitting bow at the end of the episode. Hmm. If it makes you feel better, the subsequent album, Revenge, would be one of the most beloved in the entire Kiscography. Hell yeah! But that's in the 90s. I see. Oh, look... Tell the nice people where to contact us so they can request future epic Kiscography deep dives so we can talk about those albums. Or affirm my suspicion that Kiss is no longer necessary. If you've got anything at all on your minds which you might like to share with us at Heavy Metal 101, you can do so either via email at heavymetal101podcast at gmail.com or via our social medias where we can be found on Facebook, Twitter's not what it's called anymore, Instagram, and TikTok. X. Yeah, but I don't want to say that either. Yeah. Fuck that. Twitter. Tweet us. I mean, just don't. Just everyone don't be on Twitter or X. Just don't, don't engage with that platform. Uh, threads, maybe. Uh, eh. No? It's all shit. It's all shit. Keep your short thoughts to yourself. Just shut the fuck up, everybody. Or, you just want long-form emails? <laughs> yes. Or, or voicemails? Yes. <laughs> I respect that. Uh, you can find direct links to all of our social media pages in the show notes. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please consider writing a review or giving us a rating on the platform of your choice. Every review and every rating helps to spread the word about our wee little show and also helps to brighten those dark, dark days between these wonderful marathon recording sessions. John, you now know more about 80s Kiss than the average bear. Do you feel enlightened? I feel, um, what's the word I want to say? Aroused? 
No, no. I take comfort in the knowledge that I will forget everything you've said within the next 24 to 48 hours, as is my want. Hmm. Well, for what it's worth, you look enlightened. Thank you. You have a, you have a glow about you. Mm. But just in case, I think the best way that we can possibly sign off is by having you recite some of the lyrics to the delightful, if perhaps somewhat underloved, hot in the shade track, Read My Body. John. This is how you want this episode to end. This is going to be the best conclusion we've ever had. Okay. I want you to put that big, beautiful baritone to use and read us on out of here. Would you want to know what I'm thinking about? Do you wonder, do I want to make you scream and shout? Shout it out. Would you like to see what's in my brain? Does your curiosity make you insane? Woo. Insane. Baby, you're just wasting precious time, and if you want to know what's on my mind, read my body. Are the letters big enough? Read my body. Do you like the book of my love? Read my body. Turn the page. Get to the good stuff. Read, read my body. My body, yeah. <laughs>